0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We're in the middle of a discussion of opioid dependence, uh, opioid use disorder. It falls under the general category in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Substance-Related and Addictive Disorders. Uh, We've uh, discussed most recently the treatment options Uh, particularly according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine's level of care, beginning with early intervention, which is uh, 0.5. We've discussed outpatient, which is 1. And then uh, our last program was also level 1, but particularly opioid treatment program or medication-assisted treatment, which includes the use of uh, a medication, most commonly a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, Uh, One's an agonist, one's an antagonist uh, that goes against or works against uh, the effects of the uh, opiate, which is the buprenorphine, uh, synthetic opiate. And uh, with that, then blocks receptor sites so that it takes a lesser amount of buprenorphine when the naloxone is uh, combined uh, in order to maintain Uh, the person without their experiencing withdrawal. Uh, And again, withdrawal would be where the opiate, opioid dependence (laughs) disorder, uh, one and the same, where the opiate then, without any sort of blocker, has uh, so-called filled all of the receptor sites naturally occurring in the body uh, that gets then the effect of the high uh, the opiate brings, And with that, then, when you don't have the opiate in your system, you go through a pretty severe withdrawal, not so much that it would physiologically (laughs) kill you, but it feels like it's going to. And with that, most individuals are not capable of sustaining abstinence, stopping the use of it uh, out of willpower alone, and hence... Uh, What we have then is with the use of medication assist or with the inclusion of medication assist or the use of medication in treatment of the opioid use disorder, we have a very functional option in that it takes, again, lesser amounts of the opiate because the naloxone occupies a significant number of receptor sites. It continues then to maintain the buprenorphine, the opiate maintains Uh, a normal level of functioning, and the person does not go through withdrawal. And hence, you've immediately then reduced uh, the amount of the number of receptor sites, but the amount of opiates in the system that would have available receptor sites, and uh, lessened the dependence, the physiological dependence, uh, so that at some point when you begin to titrate the drug, the combination of buprenorphine naloxone. Uh, what begins to happen then is you can do that in a very graded or gradual way and uh, lessen then any, if maybe not eliminate completely, any risk of withdrawal. and uh, thus the person can <laughs> land safely, easily, so to speak, on the other side, and uh, not necessarily have the physiological, aspect to contend with, or at least not the same uh, extent uh, to contend with uh, in their uh, recovery. You can get them off of, in short, take them off of the medication, and uh, they have a pretty fair to, as I used to say, middle chance, midland chance of uh, not going back, not uh, relapsing. However, as much as I'd like to move on today, (laughs) we might... Maybe you would want me to move on as well to uh, the next level of care, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, which is intensive outpatient treatment. Uh, I'm going to uh, kind of go back to this notion of the different dimensions. Uh, again, it's a matrix of sorts. Uh, and with that, we've we've discussed this before. But with that, uh, I'd like to just emphasize primarily maybe in a theoretical way, but with practical application, why these dimensions are as they are and what they very much directly speak to. Uh, And once more, we've already discussed all of this, so it would not be that the information is going to be necessarily new information. It's just going to be summarized and maybe interpreted a little bit differently it gives the listener, those of you who may have stayed with us throughout all of uh, uh, our uh, podcast thus far on this topic or this subject, it gives you a chance maybe to consolidate some of that as well uh, in some sort of a paradigm that makes sense to you or you can hold on to. Just a lot of data, a lot of information uh, we've covered over the, the uh, podcast thus far. But it really comes down to this. When we treat individuals within the stand, with, from the standpoint of or within the context of behavioral health, we look at it in two basic dimensions. You have the physical and all the biochemistry that goes along with that, the bodily functions, and then you have the psychological. Everything is biochemical, at least biochemically based. The human body, once more, is uh, functional because of we're being alive. Our body is well put together and uh, in that systemically so, well coordinated and balanced. What maintains that balance, besides, I guess, the genetic instruction, uh, the set points, the settings for the set points, uh, comes from that real basic genetic encoding. Uh, All of it's biochemical. Uh, As one neurotransmitter is released, then it has an effect on the system. But because of the set point, the homeostatic response, the uh, autonomic and sympathetic nervous system responds in a corresponding (laughs) sort of way to that increase with the intent of maintaining stability. Uh, Sometimes we need more of a neurotransmitter. (laughs) Sometimes we need less of a neurotransmitter. Generally speaking, when one is up, then the other is down. Again, clear example, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. Uh, When one is activated, the other is deactivated. When you're loaded toward the uh, one side, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, shuts down. And uh, with that, then, you have that idea or notion of continued balance, continued somewhat neutrality. Uh, We're looking for a state of contentment. Uh, As you might imagine, it's hard to uh, stay there. Uh, So much that goes on externally Uh, in the physiological and uh, emotional sort of realm in response to the environment, the literal, the pragmatic, again, environments socially, uh, 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 even within the context of the physical laws, the physical world we exist in, the material aspects of that, uh, it's constantly changing. Uh, We live in an existence... That is primarily a creative one in material and physical dimension. The human body, nonetheless, as much as we too are always in a state of change, and uh, even as we move throughout our life, we're coming from a point of beginning to a point of ending, but we're still part of the entirety of this creative dynamic. So, as that is going on around us, if we hope to be able to find any stability, it probably is in that genetic encoding, that real basic level, in that physiological, biochemical response, in that systemic approach we call homeostasis. And uh, to a large measure, that is the real challenge and chore in adapting. We have to maintain some degree of stability of the system, or we don't survive, which doesn't mean we are somehow out of alignment or too much out of alignment with, again, the rest of the physical world, because things, again, begin and end. Uh, And even in our demise physiologically, bodily, so we're still part of a creative dynamic, and there's going to be then hopefully some dimension of uh, a fresh start, a restart. I don't know that it necessarily means the person, uh, all of the psychological aspects, which we're going to speak of here in a moment, but definitely uh, the elemental components that make up the human body are reusable, reclaimable, recyclable. And that will indeed happen. However, when we talk about then the American Society of Addiction Medicine and these dimensions, a good number of them them are basically so physiologically directed. (laughs) The first dimension being intoxication withdrawal potential is directly physiologically directed uh, in that It speaks to once more the effect of a particular drug to throw this homeostatic response out of alignment, which again creates a demand of adjustment, a reaction, which then has implications. It's imperative to one's continued existence. Maybe it's marginal, if I could choose that word, in that it's simply a matter of contentment and satisfaction, balance being able to uh, find some sort of middle (laughs) ground, as we mentioned earlier, but it could also speak to something much more significant in that it could kill you. Too much of a drug or too much of an effect of a drug on your system could kill you. Not having a drug, as we've spoken of with withdrawal, not so much with opiates, but certainly uh, within the category of alcohol or uh, drugs that similarly categorically drugs that act similar to alcohol if you go cold turkey or stop immediately stop using a substance that you have been using in a large excessive amount over an excessive period of time you run the risk of seizures your body will stop working also with uh, alcohol again other drugs like benzodiazepines that fall in that category anxiolytic drugs uh, sedative hypnotics you're going to have the same risk potential because they go to the same sorts of places but you can overdose to the point where you have respiratory arrest your body no longer breathes you don't move oxygen into your system and throughout your body and your body can cease functioning it too upon removal of the benzodiazepine, the sedative hypnotic, you can have likewise convulsions if you've taken that in excessive amounts over a long period of time. That does not mean that the body can't tolerate the drug because that's part of the problem. There's a large amount the body can tolerate which then actually reflects upon this homeostatic response. The body has done a pretty fantastic job of coping with adapting to the abnormal dimension or aspect of that circumstance of introducing a foreign substance into your body to attain a certain effect that really is not supposed to be intentioned. How, by genetic set point, to be a constant state, it may be an occasional state, it may be a pleasurable state. But you can't live there. That's not how the body works. As the body has need, biochemistry changes, then it prompts us to do certain things, like eat and sleep, and drugs can mess that up completely. So dimension one of the ASAM, the Intoxication Withdrawal Potential, American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, criterion has to do with that very effect. (laughs) You take too much, or you're withdrawing. That is very much within that category or aspect of physiological effect. There, again, is two primary ways that we look at uh, in a behavioral health sort of aspect, uh, perspective. Treatment. You have to take into account, we have to restore homeostasis the normal bodily set point maybe that's off genetically and there may be some adjustments that are required medicinally either before or after the abnormal circumstance the situation occurs or takes place but even then <clears throat> excuse me it's fairly marginal it's not intention to be radical or major people can and do need or require medicine to stabilize, for instance, their emotions, uh, regardless of whether they've used some sort of substance or have uh, practiced any sort of addictive behaviors, patterns of behaviors, drug use, alcohol use. However, it should not be so extreme or excessive that it would put someone in a jeopardized sort of position or place, as would then self-medicating on such substances, even if it were to be for the fact that, well, maybe it began that way and somebody happened to become addicted to a medicine just trying to self-medicate or adjust their homeostatic response. And certainly there's other ways you can do that outside of medicine, exercise, nutrition, again, good sleep, all kinds of things, meditative practices. uh, That's what basically... Psychological counseling is all about assisting an individual to do that in another dimension, a more psychological sort of way. It does have an impact on the physiology, but it's not so direct. And and with that, we maintain probably a better sense of control. And it's probably overall a more healthy or a healthier way of looking at that. Not that that can't go awry either, but we're going to talk about that again in a few moments, the psychological. But from the American Society of Addiction Medicine's standpoint or uh, view of all of this, uh, intoxication withdrawal speaks to the physiological, that side of the behavioral health formula or equation when it comes to treatment. It also addresses biomedical conditions, which then may again be causative to the use of a substance, or a result of the use of a substance. That's dimension two. Dimension three is kind of a crossover. Again, presuming that everything is physiologically based, then all of our actions and even the psychological, which we'll again speak of in a moment, is physiologically based. But by the time you hit dimension three, you've moved across that continuum to a point where you're beginning to Uh, again, hit that sort of transition point from physiology into the second primary aspect. There's physiological, and then there's psychological. We're moving, when we hit dimension three, we're moving from more of the physiological concerns, as again, ASAM would present them, to then more psychological concerns. Dimension three being once more, emotional, behavioral considerations, somewhere between (laughs) the physiological and thus the emotive. And emotion is definitely physiologically based, once more, as everything else would be. It is more, however, than just neuronal activity or the central nervous system being stimulated, there is definitely a sensorium, a sensory input. And with that, that is emotive. The word emotive meaning it creates motive. And once more, how does the body then choose to cooperate with the homeostatic response? The psychological it steps in. The psychological then gives us not only opportunity to interpret the emotive, to understand what that particular emotion is connected to, but it helps us to define it, to label it. And then as we extend that a little further, all for the sake of survival, coping, adapting to the natural world and our physiological needs of survival or, or the uh, basic needs to maintain, to survive in the physical world. The psychological helps us to not only understand the concepts or to conceptualize, but also then to use those conceptualizations, those paradigms, to put them together in ways where we learn, where we, again, in our adapting, we become much more efficient at basically then resolving Whatever the emotion would suggest is the bodily need. Now, on a physiological level, the body can do some things in that sort of way of efficacy, uh, learning, uh, conditioning, a response It really doesn't require a lot of psychological interpretation or maybe the highest order of thought, as you might say, Uh, reasoning, rationalization, problem-solving, where we otherwise in some way abstract, uh, we're empirical, we apply empiricism, uh, where we are trying to not only resolve immediate problems, but anticipate them so that we can avoid them in the future. All of this is good stuff, by the way, But when you get into that territory, you're moving more so from physiology-based to more will. You're moving also from something that might be called more intuitive in psychological sort of terminology to something that is more along the lines of awareness, something that might be more subconscious, below one's conscious awareness But now, when you get to the higher thoughts, ordered thinking, they call them higher in the industry, we call them higher cortical functions, what you begin to have then is a conscious awareness. So, what ASAM is basically saying is, at least my interpretation of it, level or dimension one and two are pretty much biological or physiologically based, Level three has the emotional dimension that is directly tied to the physiology, but it also has then this aspect of transition or transitioning over into more psychological terms. Now, the psychological would then include not only the behaviors as with, once more, today's podcast, the conditioned responses, which don't require much higher cognitive thoughts or cortical functions, in that way of consciousness, in that way of consideration, problem-solving, etc. However, it starts to become then that when you start to get into behaviors. And some psychologists, psychological types, would call then even behaviors manifestations of some psychological or conscious sort of ordered thinking. Uh, My intention to create a habit, which is otherwise intent or intention, a will, taps into that notion that the more I do something, I have to order it on the front end. I have to choose it on the front end. I might have to change something that inadvertently became conditioned Out of a choice or will, I have to change it by thinking about it, elevating it from the subconscious to the conscious, conscious, conscious aspects. There's a dimension of conscience that goes along with this too, but not necessarily right at this moment. But when I begin to think of it in those terms, then I have a choice. (laughs) And my choice then is to change which then takes us to dimension four, which is, coincidentally, readiness to change. That dimension, level four, then speaks to a transition from something we might need to treat against, especially with medication assist, which is why I'm going into all of this, chose to go into all of this myself on this podcast because we've just finished up medication assist treatment option, level one. We can address the physiological in the best way possible through the use of medicine. And then there are other techniques that are currently under development. That includes ways to stimulate the brain that does not require the use of a medicine uh, through electromagnetic waves, et cetera, et cetera. And though that sound, may sound a little like science fiction, it's happening. It's not only happening, it's being researched, just being researched, but we're seeing it finally get to the place of some access or accessibility in a practice-oriented sort of way. People can actually go to someone who can hook you up to, so to speak, a machine that then stimulates a certain part of your brain uh, through electromagnetic waves and can achieve A biochemical change in your physiology now we could do that in the past it was called electroconvulsive therapy very crude but your brain would be shocked particularly again this region of the higher cortical functions and with that it would not only be your brain but your whole body but it could then excite your whole body and treatment so to speak for depression especially showed some signs of improvement. It was reserved for only the worst possible cases where someone was so depressed, there was no emotion or energy there that translated to a will or a desire to change, that it needed artificial stimulation. And because at that point medicine had failed, someone might be considered appropriate for ect electroconvulsive therapy in today's world it's much less intrusive in the sense of harm it still affects the brain probably more than the ect did certainly in a more direct or specified way it doesn't not have to affect the whole body it's not a global sort of response but with that it has lesser risk of harm to the body but what we're really trying to capture for the sake of today's podcast in this discussion on uh, opioid uh, use disorders in the general category particularly substance related or addictive disorders as a general category is that dimension four readiness for change includes then not only the physiological, which I said at the beginning of the podcast, is a major one of the two primary considerations of all behavioral health interventions. We have to realize there is a physiological change we're trying to get at. Everything, again, psychology included, is physiologically based. We can directly access that through medicines and now alternatives to medicine, as I just mentioned. But we also can access that through psychological sort of strategy, thinking it out, labeling the emotion, coming up with plans and strategies and solutions, ways to condition, make changes in not only the physiology, because the thoughts do have influence over the emotions in that thinking, changing our behaviors, creating different conditioning, different habits or responses, can then alter our physiology, maybe not as directly as a medicine would, but it can, and maybe also not as immediately as a medicine could, over time. But as I was speaking to earlier, that is preferential in that it has less harm attached to it, the psychological changes, the change in thinking patterns, the change then that results in behaviors, the change then that can go uh, remove us or move us, remove maladaptive past patterns and move us toward more adaptive present and future patterns, all of that, from a psychological standpoint, is much more easily entreated. And it's much more sustainable. Why? Because if the paradigm doesn't change, even if you can change the physiology, a person, and hence we're getting into not only persons now, but this idea of personality. What we are just, we've just described or presently are describing is really the foundational sort of basis to personality. All of this has come together more gradually than immediately over the course of one's life. We've acquired habit upon habit. We've been influenced psychosocially moment by moment. Circumstance by circumstance, situation by situation, over the context of time, and so by the time that we get to a point, even when our brain, and that's something that probably should be said, it takes about 21 years, more or less, for the brain to develop all of the capacities we're speaking of today. It begins in more emotional terms, more reflexive stimulus response, more neuronal based, and moves over the course of the brain's literal migration within the skull, the head. (laughs) It expands. Certain regions develop, parts of the brain develop. The higher cortical functions are the last to come fully online because they're the last to fully develop. Imagine all that you've learned without the benefit of being able to be aware or sort out or analyze or study or use empiricism, what we call it in school, what we call in school hypothetical deductive reasoning. All that you become by the time that fully develops then defines you. You are already a personality with good and unfortunately bad by the time you hit that certain age or moment in life. We say 21 more or less. It could be earlier. It can be later. But definitely by the time you leave your 20s, you're pretty much the person that you are. And unless there is some intention, Some will, some desire to change. You are not going to likely change. The social environment, too, that resulted in you becoming that person is likely to also, as they were contributory to, maybe primary contributors to, you becoming who you were. We call that socialization. The environment you grew up in, the physical world, the locale in the terms of the geography on this globe that we all live, Earth, has a lot to say to what you will do personality wise. And with that, if you're going to change or if you're required to change because even the physical dimensions of your existence changes somewhat radically, it will take willpower, it will take higher cortical functions, it will take strategy, it will take coaching, it will take encouragement, it will take a change in psychosocial dimension, your social support systems, the network you socialize within, the persons you socialize with. Again, I hope I'm making some sense because that's exactly what it takes to change the person so that they no longer are a practicing addict. How long does it take to change? Again, the psychological, particularly the personality element, takes a while, much longer than the medicine. So we give medication. We eliminate withdrawal. (laughs) We address the intoxication withdrawal potential. We hopefully can arrest the biomedical conditions if some are ancillary to, causative of, or by the use of uh, the drug, the opioid, they were caused by the opioid use. We can do things to correct them also probably medicinally. But by the time we get to dimension three, emotional, behavioral, and then fast approaching dimension four, we've done everything we can for you physically. But if we don't change your personality, the way you think, counter-condition, as we call it, all of the bad habits, raise and elevate all of those things that are otherwise subconscious, otherwise somewhat seemingly intuitive, otherwise beyond your conscious awareness to a level where we can say, wait a minute, let's take a look at how you're doing this. Maybe we need to change it. We are probably not going to be able to do anything more than affect the change physically because the will has to sustain it. Or we have to keep you on medicine for the rest of your life. Fortunately so, we do not yet categorize the medication assist, the combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, the typical combination, the most widely used combination, presently on the market or in application. We don't believe you have to be on that for the rest of your life. We believe you have to be on that until you can start to make a choice and engage more of these psychological dimensions or dynamics, make a plan, come up with a strategy, begin to change your habits so that you can go off of the medicine and have that then maintain or support your homeostatic response, the hedonic system. I have not mentioned it. The pleasure-pain system starts working. The emotions are driven by the hedonic system. It is to let you know when you need something so that you then again can interpret that or learn again to interpret that emotion appropriately so that you'll know what it is you need so that you can make then the adjustments in your life to get what you need so that you can then Better cope and adapt so that you can survive. And maybe it won't be a matter of life or death in an immediate sort of way, as we mentioned or discussed earlier, but it certainly speaks to the quality of your life in addition to these quantitative sort of measures of life. To be happy, to be content, to be joyful, that's a good thing. And the psychological can help you to identify what needs to happen, especially if you did not get the best learning or socialization, if there's maladaptive patterns, genetically if you've inherited a predisposition for drug use, which we know we've spoken of in prior podcasts, exists. You are already well-contaminated then by all of this, already sort of predetermined to go down that particular road that is, again, as with the disease model, physiologically but also psychologically, it progresses to the point of harming you more and more and more over the course of your life unless you change that. You arrest that progression. You make a directional change in your life. You alter and modify what you can of your personality. You may have to do that throughout your life, but it's better than medicine. And all the side effects, which I have not also mentioned in today's podcast, but are also there that go along with any medicine, Because when you start to introduce a medication, any sort of substance into your system, it's going to not only throw off that equilibrium or balance, the homeostatic response, but as I've mentioned also with the ECT, medicine has a global effect. It just doesn't affect a one part of the body or brain, it affects the whole body, and some of that you don't want changed and in somewhat that way then there are side effects and in somewhat that way there may be withdrawal even from once more prescribed medications the buprenorphine is a synthetic opiate what many people do not realize is because it does work so well Once they start on that, they're feeling normal. The amount of opiate they're taking is lessened, as we've described or explained already. They think they can go off of it. Cold turkey. You can't. You will go through withdrawal going off of the buprenorphine. You have to gradually reduce that. We call that titration. But it does happen. But you can't expect any medicine... be a panacea or to resolve it all. There has to be psychological will choice applied to change the lifestyle, to allow a more natural and more uh, entreatable, easily entreated alternative to start to take over. So that the normal bodily sort of functions that translate Happy, joyful, content, have more of a chance rather than less of a chance. And whether you would agree with me on this point or not, and this gets back to conscience, uh, it wasn't time earlier in the podcast, it's time now. There is something about us all, though, <laughs> that lets us know when we're doing something self destructive. Even if our conscious mind, even if it has happened before we were able to analyze it and it's already, again, predetermined us to sickness, somewhere along the way, everyone's conscience speaks to them and says, hey, it could be better. We really should do something about this. Now, you can mute it. You can say, uh-uh, I'm not going to think about that. You can try and say, well, it doesn't work and give up. But the conscience probably is, if you need something to really attach it to, whatever that instinct is for survival, <laughs> the conscience has a psychological sort of expression that lets us know this is not good for us this is not where we want to be this is dangerous this really should have something done to change it when you're at that point <laughs> of that voice when you're as they say in in not only the business but most people that come see us that are dyed in the wool heavy duty <laughs> whatever you want to describe it addicts you're sick and tired of being sick and tired your conscience finally kicks in and kicks you into gear that is then that dimension of readiness for change now with that you look at dimension five relapse or continued use if we've addressed it physically if we've addressed it psychologically, then the likelihood of relapse is, though there, going to, in a likewise manner to the disorder and disease, except now in a good sort of way, and get easier. The chance of your relapse should go down the better your supports physically, psychologically, psychosocially, environmentally. All of that should have a very good effect on lessening your chance of relapse or continued use, which brings us then to dimension six. So if all of that's happened, you've changed your social environment, you've changed your physical sort of environment, for lack of a better way of describing it, You've changed your psychological perspective. You have the supports you need psychologically to sustain this. You get some time under your belt. You begin to, again, lessen or mitigate the risk of relapse within time, but not time, application of all of this. Then your living environment should have substantially changed. However, (laughs) there's always a but, right? It isn't as easy as all of that sounds because it is hard to change your physical environment. It is difficult to get up and move and leave, at least somewhat so. I do think people try geographical solutions, but they always end up coming back home. And when you come home, if home hasn't substantially changed, then you're going to be subject to the same factors that we've talked about throughout today's podcast. And it will take no time, no time, for you to go back to where you were when you stopped when you arrested the progression of the disorder and initiated the changes, when your conscience finally kicked in, when your consciousness finally accepted, you got past your denial, your defense mechanisms, which are also psychologically based and have to be neutralized or deactivated, you will go back to where you started not started your progression to, into the hell that is addiction, but rather where you began your recovery. You'll pick up right where you left off. And that is why it takes more sometimes than level one care, either outpatient or opioid treatment program, also level one medication assist. Sometimes you need a change in environment that is as immediate as medicine might be. And that's where level of care 2.1 comes in. Intensive outpatient treatment. Then there is also, with that same notion of living environment, level 2.5, partial hospitalization, 3.1, a halfway house. 3.3, clinically managed, population-specific, high-intensity residential services. 3.5, residential treatment. 3.7, medically monitored intensive inpatient services. And Level 4, medically managed intensive inpatient services. Which does not necessarily mean, however that the person has to stay either in any of those changed living environments, but that those living environments represent an intensification of change necessary to stop the person from continuing to use the substance. And I should end probably with that today, If anything foils any of our best intentions, best plans, best diagnosis, best treatment strategies, treatment plan development, it would be relapse. Once you use again, a lot of that, I won't say all, it doesn't take long, however, for that all to really have effect. You lose it, and you have to start over again. We don't want that. These also, these uh, higher levels of care, represent more restrictive treatment alternatives, meaning that we are going to, we on the side of treatment, we on the side of the psychological counseling and the intervention, are going to start taking more control of your life because once more you are not capable in emotional, physiological first, emotional and psychological ways of making a good choice and sustaining it. We almost have to then make you do it. (laughs) That, if it works at all, only works as long as we have control. Once you leave the facility, if you've not psychologically developed your willpower or choice, changed your habits, changed your personality, you will be exposing yourself not only to great risk of relapse, but you will most likely, statistically speaking, you are going to have a greater risk of relapsing. So short version of all of that being, yes, we can make you better. Yes, you'll be better as long as we can control your life. But the minute you take over again, if you're an addict, you're gonna be right back where you were, and if not immediately, very short order. That's why the psychological is so important and why medicine alone is not an answer. Again, many people don't understand because they have not gotten to the point of application of these psychological sort of aspects to their life. They do not realize yet or aren't willing to admit yet the degree of personality change that's going to be required. They want medicine to be their answer. Buprenorphine and naloxone are great aids and assists and they work and there's nothing wrong with them. And they are better than necessarily, and probably next program we'll discuss this a bit, methadone, which is another medication assist. But at the same time, if there's not the psychological growth, if there's not the continued maturation. And many times what we're really speaking of with that too is, depending on how dysfunctional the psychosocial socialization process was, the psychosocial environment during socialization was, the person may never have matured and developed, accomplished developmental milestones, They may still be acting like a 12-year-old, even if they're in their 30s. The good news when it comes to developmental milestones, you can always make them up. But you have to put some strategy to it and have a will to grow up, to be mature, to be adult-like, or what we used to describe or think of when we said adult-like descriptively, of our choices. Psychological counseling assists us in being those things. Adaptive, functional, socially responsible, productive citizens. So give that some thought. As always, it is a pleasure to be able to present this information to you on Word. I always post an email address, I would consider it a privilege if you would reach out to me, share thoughts on the program, the podcast, ask any questions that you have. I'll be glad to try to answer them if it's within my scope of practice to do. And if I can't, then I'm going to find someone who can and is the best person to be able to help you. Might only be that it's a matter of region or geography, since the podcast goes to who knows where. You may, I may not be able to assist you directly, but I'll help you find someone where you live or can help you where you live uh, to address these concerns. Once more, this is Dr. Michael David Clay on Word, and I want to thank you for joining us today, and I'd also want to invite you back to our next podcast. Thanks.